If you're new to Redeemer, we're making our way through the book of Ezra. And so we are in Ezra chapter 8 right now, and we'll finish that up today. So I'm going to read God's word and ask his blessing on it, and then we'll jump into it. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, and we'll read all the way through verse 36. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God and to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves and our children and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. And then I set apart 12 of the leading men, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all of Israel there present had offered. And I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, and 20 bowls of gold that's worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chamber of the house of the Lord. And so the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. And at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, we offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. And all of this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people in the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask your blessing now upon our time. We do pray that you would be pleased to meet with your people, to build us up in the faith, to show us the wonderful things in your law, to give us confidence and hope in the face of fear and anxiety. 
to give us strength to stand firm in our faith. I do pray that you would bless the preaching of your word for the glory of your own son's name and not my own. I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. When I was little, I thought um, that bulletproof vests, I thought that they sort of worked like you see on some of the superhero movies. You see some of the superheroes, if you're Iron Man or some other Marvel character, that when bullets are shot, the bullets just hit you and they fall off the ground. They, they do not hurt the superhero. And in my, my childish mind, I thought that when people wear bulletproof vests, that it sort of happens the same way, that you're shot and, and the bullet just hits you and it just falls to the ground. And then sort of reality sets in and you realize that protection does not always mean the absence of pain. Protection does not mean the lack of fear. Being protected does not mean the lack of anxiety. And you see it when the person is shot with a bulletproof vest on, if you were to examine where they were shot, you would see red markings, right? You would take off the vest and you would be able to tell that something tried to penetrate. And it would, and oftentimes it will jar your skin. It might burn it, but it will not get through. I want us to sort of deal with this under this framework that protection does not always mean the absence of pain. And it does not always mean the absence of fear. You think about the airbags in your cars. If you were in an accident, they will mess you up pretty bad. I mean, they will black your eye. I mean, all kind of stuff. But it's better to have a black eye and walk out, right, than to be fatally killed. Protection does not always mean the absence of pain. I say that because that's what's happening in our text. That if you notice the title, the hand of God always protects the people of God. And when we hear that, I know where my mind goes. My mind goes to if God is protecting me, then it necessarily means that there will be no pain in my life and there will be no anxiety in my life and there will be no hardship in my life. And what the text tells us this morning is that that is not true, that those two things are not mutually exclusive. The hand of God does protect his people. And at times it may hurt. And at times the things that are happening in our lives, they may cause anxiety and pain, but that does not mean his hand is not there sovereignly keeping and sovereignly blessing and sovereignly protecting his people. Now I know this is the truth because when you see the text, Ezra is really afraid. I mean, he is really afraid if we and the women and the children and the goods, if we're going to make this 900 mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, he's really afraid. But here's the thing that you find out. They do make it to Jerusalem and they make it in one piece. And the wrong way to look at this text is to say you can't be anxious. The wrong way to look at this text and to say somehow something's wrong with you with being worried about your safety. No. Those two things will oftentimes coexist. We can be afraid and at the same time know that God's hand is with us. We can be hurting and at the same time know that we're covered and kept by God. And that is the tension of the Christian life. 
is living sort of between this already and this not yet. We're, we're loved, we're being guarded, we're being kept. But everything that God is doing for us is not fully happening right now, right? That one day is coming or he will make all things new or he will defeat sin and sorrow and sickness and sadness. And then we will be able to fully and perfectly behold him as he truly is and as the world as it should be. But until then, we're kind of journeying along. And in the journey, there's going to be fear and there's going to be pain. And it's going to be anxiety. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at sort of the bind that Ezra's in. And when I say Ezra, I don't just mean the man himself. I mean the people of God. He says, I proclaim to fast, but he says that we. So notice there, he's doing this, but it, it is the entire covenant community that's leaving, leaving Babylon, that's getting back to Jerusalem. This is, this is what they're corporately going through as a body. I want to look at the bind that, that they're in, and I'll explain that later. I want to look at sort of, if we're, if we're not careful in that bind, what's typically our, our, our first behavioral response to the bind? I want to look at that and sort of unpack that so that you and I can see that, hey, we're just like them. I want us to look at, the third point is the God that we need to behold in that space, in that space where we're in this bind that I'm going to talk about, that, that oftentimes we have to check ourselves and say, wait a minute, I'm a child of God. And because this is true, then this means that this right here is going on around me, but I don't have to try to fix all of this right now, that I can have an alternate posture that says that I can look up. And the fourth thing I want us to look at is the God who beholds us. That this whole idea of them looking up, it was not a one-way street. It was a two-way street. That God Almighty himself was hearing them and looking after them. And then his hand was involved in making sure they got where they needed to go. So the first thing is the bind that they're in. That if you remember uh, Ezra chapter 7, which was a few weeks ago, you remember what Ezra talked about. I mean, look at the end of Ezra chapter 7. Look at verse um, 28 or 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, Artaxerxes, who was not a Christian, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So Artaxerxes, he freely lets Ezra go back and he sends him with a lot of stuff. And look at what he says in verse 28. And the same Lord, the, the, the God of our fathers, has extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all of his mighty officers. And therefore, I took courage for the hand of the Lord. My God was on me. So right there, that's chapter seven. In chapter seven, he is proclaiming and believing my God loves me. And my, the hand of my God has been upon me and he has given me favor in the presence of a king. We are going home, baby. Right. That's chapter seven. Now, when you get to chapter eight, you get a whole different vibe, right? So first they get to this river, the river Ahava, and they get there and they get their first hiccup. They don't have Levites. Well, you can't operate a temple without the Levites. And so it's kind of one of those moments where it's like crisis mode. Wait a minute. How do we go there to build the house of the Lord and to worship in the house of the Lord? And we don't even have priests who, Levites who will assist the priests. 
And what does Ezra say? What does he say happened? I sent a group of men to this other person, and then the Lord sent us Levites. The hand of the Lord was upon us, and he sent us leading men. So you get hiccup number one. In chapter seven, the Lord loves me. He's protecting me. He's with me. And then the next chapter, wait a minute, we don't have Levites. That was an internal problem to Israel, right? That was their fault. They did not, the Levites did not show up. But what you see in our passage this morning is there is a second threat, a second dangerous uh, position that they're in. And I want to unpack that. Why is Ezra afraid of them making it safely from Babylon to Jerusalem? Look at what it says. The first thing is the vulnerable people with him. Notice how he says, I called to fast that we may seek from the Lord protection for ourselves, for our children and for our goods. And so in that crowd, that's probably 3,000 to 6,000 people going back with Ezra. There are men, there are women, there are children, and there are senior citizens. That's the first clue that this journey is going to be hard. You ever try to take a road trip for 900 miles with kids, right? (laughs) Or with grandparents who are older. It's just not going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be rough. That's the first piece of uh, he's worried. Can we travel across the desert, across the wilderness. We don't have cars. We don't have trains. We are iking and miking it, which is what our code word for using your feet, or we're riding on beasts of burden. That's a hard trip. But it's not just the people, the vulnerable people. What you also see in the sex is the valuable possessions. Now, notice right here when he starts to, I love Ezra, by the way, he, is, he pays attention to details. Look right over there when you turn to Ezra chapter 8, verse 26. Look at what it says. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold and 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks. So this is just, now, this, this, is, this is just the stuff that they had. This isn't the people who went in their homes and gathered everything they had because they're being transplanted 900 miles. I'm packing up and I'm probably not coming home. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. So outside of this stuff right here, you've got everything you could pack up and manage. You have that parading it through the desert, parading it through the wilderness. Now, I put a graphic together. Jimmy, show this. Now, we, we don't use derricks. We don't use uh, talents. And we, we kind of have to figure out what is the weight? Like, like, what is this? Because these concepts are foreign to us. And so this is, you can go, I mean, like, if I'm wrong, it's Google's fault, not mine. <laughs> I put that out there already. So silver, right now, if you bought a pound of silver, you're going to pay $260 for it. If you could afford a pound of gold, you're going to pay $17,000 to $20,000 per pound. And if you want to do gold by the gram, you're going to pay $50 per gram. Now, here's a conversion ratio. When you see talents, I added up the talents of silver, 600 plus to 250. That's where you get the 850 talents. Here's the thing. One talent is 75 pounds. Take that in. One talent is 75 pounds in our day. Now, you get 63,750 pounds of silver. Now, you have to multiply that by the conversion factor. How much is one pound of silver? One pound of silver is $260. 
you get $16,575,000 worth of silver. This is just the silver. Next slide. You got 100 talents of gold, 75 pounds to one talent. You got 7,500 pounds of gold. And you multiply that by $17,000 per pound, and that's being conservative. You got $127,500,000 worth of gold. The little Derricks, that's, that's a half a million. That looks like toy money compared to everything else up there, right? So you're walking through the wilderness with $144,500,000 worth of metal, right? That's five elephants of silver that you're just parading through the wilderness. I drive a Honda Pilot. It's like a 2010 edition, and it weighs about four tons. It's like having a Honda Pilot that is solid gold <laughs> going right through the wilderness. All right, you can kill it. Thank you. Now, here's the point. $144 million, 575000 That's what they're carrying with them. And you know what? They don't have soldiers. They don't have the cavalry. They don't have weapons. They don't have guns. They got themselves. And on top of that, look at who he's afraid of in this text. He says the enemy, the enemy. Look at it with me. Look at verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Right there. The enemy. Right there. Go down again to verse uh, 31. Look at what it says. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. You see, God's hand is releasing us. And we're going across the wilderness, across the desert to 900 miles with all of these women and these little kids and these senior citizens and $144 million worth of goods. And we don't have a military with us. And there's a real enemy out there who wants to ambush us. Now, I don't know who the enemy is. I know that we can't even keep a trailer back here without it being stolen. I'm serious. Like we had a trailer that we kept stuff in. You leave it over there unattended. It's gone. We've, we've we bought a house around the corner that the litmus is staying We're right there. We put two or three air conditioning units in it because we put the unit there and no one's living there and someone cuts it and hauls it off. You see, that's the fallenness of the world we live in. People will capitalize off of opportunity. People will capitalize off the weak. And you got these people with these goods, with no army, walking through the, the, the wilderness. Ezra is afraid. And he is in what I would call the bind. And here is the bind. In chapter 7, he professed how lovely God was. In chapter 7, he professed how covenantally faithful God was. In chapter 7, he professed this hand of God that is upon him. And you know what's happening in chapter 8? What he professed is being tested. You say God is 100, huh? You say he, he clutch, right? He can get you home, right? You say he got your back. You say he's a provider. You say he's a protector. 
It's one thing to say it with our mouths, right? But it's a whole other thing to actually be in a position where we need you to protect us. Well, we need you to show me you're covenantally faithful, not when I'm in the king's house, but when I'm in the woods and I'm in the wilderness. I need to know that you're the same there and there. And that is the crisis. That's the bond he's in. He's professed this stuff, this lofty good stuff about God in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Guess what? It's time for me to experience this hand. It's time for me to, to believe and trust in this hand. Can't we relate to that? Are we in the bind all the time? We come in here and we sing and we pray. We have our devotions and our quiet times. We know all of this stuff about God and we proclaim it with our mouths. It's a whole nother thing when you actually have to go and be patient with someone. It's a whole nother thing when you pro proclaim that he's a provider, provider, provider. But man, I, I can't pay my bills this month. You see how it works? He's in the bind. He's in the bind. He's in that place where what he has proclaimed has to be now experienced. And that's painful. It's hard to go there. We kind of assume that because I say this and believe this, that I'm not going to have the world pressed in or pressing against. He's in the bind. Now, here's the thing. How do we normally respond to the bind is what I want to get at. Now, I know that in a church like this, we have baby Christians, right? And then we have people who are holy and godly and who've been walking with the Lord for 30, 40 years. And they are anchors and they're the people you go to when you're in the bind and you can't figure it out. And they're not saying anything new. They're just telling you, hey, love the Lord. And they're coming alongside you with scripture and they're praying. Right. So but in a church like this, we have the whole spectrum. Right. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to I want to pay attention to this side over here for a minute. If you're like me, my life is not together. I'm a pastor and I'm following the Lord. But when I get in the bind, I don't always act like a model pastor. And if you were to be honest with your own heart. You don't either. And so here, here is what happens in the bind when our faith is being tested. Here's what we typically do. Here's what, what I have to catch myself from doing. Let me phrase it that way. Let me show you what Ezra does, then I'll circle back. Notice what Ezra says in verse 22. Again, Ezra is a scribe. He is really, really paying attention to details. But notice what he says in verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. And so in the midst of fear, in the midst of making it from Babylon to Jerusalem with the women and the children and the goods and no army. Notice what he says. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. Now, don't overlook that. Because if he is telling you I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. You know what it means? It crossed his mind. It means that it actually crossed his mind to do it. And then something kicked in and said, no, you shouldn't do that. You just profess this. No, you're a child of God. And so shame set in. Shame always sets in when we behave in a way that is incongruent with who we think we are, or who we should be. And the moment that there is a defect, that's where shame is birthed out of. Right. And so here he's saying, I was ashamed. Shame set in. What does that mean? 
here's the cycle. And, and if you're honest, I think it's in the text and I think it's in our lives. Here's the cycle. Chapter 7, God is mighty. God is strong. God is covenantally faithful. That's what you get. Chapter 8, the time of testing come. Testing at the river, testing with the Levites, testing with making it safely. And then notice was right here at the bottom, the temptation. What is the temptation? It crossed his mind. Wait a minute. Me and the king, we cool. And he got soldiers and he got horsemen. So maybe I can just go back and ask the king to send us a group of men that can escort us. And then shame sets in because he knows that, hey, wait a minute. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your keeper. And so you see that? You see what happens? Profession of faith, temptation, the, the, the struggle to go and seek outside help from the king and then shame. That's the cycle right there in the text. Now, if you don't believe this road was dangerous, you go look in Nehemiah chapter two, when Nehemiah leaves and comes from the very same king. Nehemiah said, bro, you got to send me some soldiers. I'm not Ezra. Like he comes later and he basically asks the king, hey, can you send me some horsemen and some soldiers to go with me? That when Nehemiah goes in, he's like whipping people and stuff like they are totally different, right? They are totally different. Ezra's in the bind because he knows the moment I go back and ask the king for soldiers to protect, I undermine the very ministry the Lord has entrusted to me. He's put me in Artaxerxes' favor. And I have told Artaxerxes, the hand of the Lord is strong for those who love him and his wrath is severe for those who hate him. So how can I now go and ask the king for armed troops when I've just told him that the Lord is strong. And so he's in the bind, right? That's where he is, right there. And so, I think for us that when we're in that place, when faith is being tested, we're just like him. We'll go and look outside for some type of help, for some type of assistance, for some type of Somebody come on and, and, let, and, and what we, we might not look out to kings and want soldiers on horses and chariots, but we will look outside of God to find relief. And that's the temptation in the bind is that we circumvent the cross. We circumvent our God and we assume that our ultimate help can come from a king or it can come from a person or it can come from a thing. And so it works like this, that when we're in the bind, this place of frustration and fear, that we can easily, right, you get in this place of, 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 of professing faith and testing and you get in this bind where you're, you're, you're being tried. It's easy right there in that place to run to what? Alcohol, right? We're running to anything, anything. Numb this thing in my heart that I can't fix. Numb this situation in my life that I can't fix. And so we reach out. Give me alcohol, give me sex, give me pleasure, give me money. We will reach out to anything that we can, hoping and thinking that that thing will bring alleviation to the bind. We might look out to friends where we, we get so lost in our network of friends that rather than sit there in the bind and deal with it, we will reach out and go from this party to this party to this party to this party to this drug and this alcohol. I mean, we, we are fundamentally skewed and sinful in such a way that when this happens, we will run and try to fix it. Some of you may 
try to fix it with just, you know what? I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to figure this out. And we're going to turn inward to our own strength and our own wisdom and our own ability. We won't reach out because we're afraid. Or we won't reach to alcohol because we're scared. Or we won't do this because we're scared. But what we will do, I myself will fix this thing right now. I will set my heart to do it. And that's wrong as well. Got a hundred different ways that when we're in the bind, we will do everything but what God has given to us. And that is himself. And I'm not saying having good friends. I'm not saying that that's bad. And I'm not saying having a good strategy. I'm not saying that's bad. And I'm not saying that getting counseling and therapy, that is not bad. That is good. But here is the thing. If we are not careful, we will try to fix the bind in a hundred different good ways. And not one time have we talked to our father. And not one time have we went vertical. And that is the danger. We got to get vertical. We got to get altitude. We got to draw near to him. There are bonds that we are in that I don't care how good of a husband you are. You can't fix your wife's depression. There are bonds that you get in. I don't care how good of a wife you are. You can't fix your husband's addiction. There are bonds that we get in with our children. I don't care how good of a parent you are. The best schools having them in Bible study, having them at church, sometimes those things won't fix them. Like God Almighty has to sovereignly, right? He has to do it by his spirit and by his own hand. He has to get involved and fix this. That's, that's life, right? We're always looking for other things rather than going vertical. And I'm not saying that other things aren't bad. I'm just saying that they aren't ultimate. So what do we do? What do you see Ezra doing? It's the God that he beholds. And you see it. Look at what he says in verse 21. In the midst of his fear, in the midst of his shame. Look at what he says. And there, then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before who? Before our God and seek from who? From him a safe journey for ourselves and our children and all of our goods. God had just gave him men to go with him. God had just gave him favor with King Artaxerxes. And you hear what Ezra is saying? You give me men, you give me favor, but only your hand can get me home. He's going vertical, right? He's going up. So notice what he does. He calls a fast and, and, and they pray. Look at what it says in verse 23. And so we fasted and we implored our God. That's kind of the one-two punch. When we're getting jabbed and assaulted, notice how he fights back. He fights back with his own one-two punch. We're going to pray and we're going to fast. Now, if I'm an enemy with big guns and big men, when I look at how you're fighting, I'm laughing at you. What do you mean over here, Ezra? You're not going to go and get help from the king? What do you mean? You're not going to eat food. You're going to die hungry, right? Like, think about the logic. Think about the logic that in the bind, he does not eat, and he does not reach out to the help from the king. He silences himself. He denies himself food, and he talks to his God. 
That looks completely foolish in a bind. If you think in the bind, all you have at your disposal are things visible and are things present. But notice what Ezra is doing. In the bind, I have unseen strength and I have unseen realities that are real and true. And my job in the bind is to pursue my God. And so he calls a fast and then they pray. Now, notice what he says. Why is he doing this? Look at verse 21, that we might humble ourselves. That's a confession of inadequacy. And that is okay. Notice what he says in verse 22, that we would seek from him a safe journey. That's a confession. I'm weak. My God is strong. Why these two disciplines in the bind? Because they are the antithesis to human strength and human wisdom. We're looking to the king. We're looking in ourselves as we have to figure it out and get it together. These two disciplines, they completely destroy that. They say, I'm not strong. They say, I'm weak. And they say, my God is strong and my God will keep me and I will draw near to him. And so when the bind comes, we have a person at our disposal who delights in us. We have the freedom in the midst of the fear and the doubts and even the pain to turn our attention from what seems to be crushing and paralyzing and to gaze it upon him. And trust me, you and I will have to we will have to obliterate the inner lawyer in us that tells us, like, you have to fix this now. You can't do anything else until you solve this now. This thing is pressing in. It is the most important thing in your life. And we have to say, no, it's not. We have to have enough faith in the Lord to say, no, it's not. I can go to my God right now. And this thing is pressing in on me. It's important, but it is not defining who I am. I can go before the throne of my God. And that looks completely foolish. To cast our cares upon the Lord. To draw near to him in his temple. You notice what Ezra says? Do you notice what we just sang? And now I approach the throne and I have confidence. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died for me. We just sang that. You you hear what we're singing? And now I approach the throne and I have confidence because Jesus, the great high priest, has died and he has made a way. I can go straight into the very throne room of God in my time of need and he will listen. He will not cast me away. He delights for me to commune with him right there. You notice what, what else we say? Notice what Ezra says in verse 23. We fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You see that phrase? 
It says he heard us. It wasn't just that we fasted and, and, and prayed and looked up to him, but it actually says he heard us. And do you notice what we just sang? Look at it. Look at it in the, in the song. We just sang. Let me find it. Look at the third verse. One, two, the third verse. My advocate appears for my defense on high. The father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away, shall turn his heart, his love away. Do you see this? The father bends his ear to his people because of Christ, and he is there. There is no thunder. There is no wrath. You and I are invited into his very bosom in the binds that we get in life. You see it? He hears, he bows, he hears, he invites. And this is what prayer and fasting, a part of it is. It's talking to our Father. It's crying out for help. It's communicating our needs and our longings and our desires and our hurts and our pains. We don't have to hide that from him. When we fast, we're setting apart a meal or time for eating for those things that give us the illusion of strength, for those things that we do that are methodical, that we just do and do and do and to stop the cycle of just doing and to say for a moment, for a season, I will deny my food because my ultimate strength is in the Lord. And I will draw near to the Lord in fasting, right? And I know we don't talk about it a lot because I don't think we all do it a lot, but it is a, a spiritual discipline that is at our disposal where God says, I will hear and you will draw near and I will answer. And so it's a book over here that I, it's a great book, especially the chapter on fasting. And it's by Donald Whitney. He has a beautiful chapter on fasting that I would commend to you. I was convicted, but also encouraged this week because I don't fast enough. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, man, how much stress and junk am I just working through on my own? Because I will not humble myself before my God and say, I can't do it. I need you. I need more of you. But my heart aches with the world and the things of the world, and yet I'm trusting the world to fix it. Let me stop. Let me stop and let me shed these things and all of these things that I'm trusting in. I need to trust in you, and I want to see more of you. And it is not to win your favor. Christ has secured your favor. This is a privilege that I have as a son to draw near to my God. And Jesus says, when you fast, your father will see it, and he will reward it. I'm not going to tell you how to fast. I'm not going to tell you when to fast. But I will say that when you look at this text and the danger that they're in and the fear that they feel, the irony of it all is that he is at the river Ahava where three days ago they had eaten food and fish and refreshed. And he's at that same river now saying, we're not going to eat. We need more of the Lord. We need to see this king who is enthroned. We need to see this alternate reality that is the true reality that we have been blinded from seeing through the worlds and the cares of the world. 
There's a book I am reading, and it's called uh, The More of Less. And it's really a, a minimalist book. And so minimalist ideology, it basically says this, that as Americans, and not just Americans, as people, we have this problem with accumulating so much stuff. And so we get not one car, but two cars. Or you get not one house, but two houses. It's nothing wrong with having stuff. But the book is saying that as you get more stuff, you are more stressed because you have to care for your stuff. And so it starts with this analogy with the dad who is in his garage cleaning out the garage, right? And his, his son says, Dad, can we play football? Can we play football? And he's like, okay, son, after I clean the garage. Can we play football? Can we play football? Okay, son, after I do this. And he says, can we play football? Okay, after I straighten up the garage. And it dawns on him right there in the moment that my stuff is keeping me from who I love. It's a noble thing to get up and to rearrange the 10,000 items you have in your garage. It's another thing to reduce those 10,000 to 1,000 so it takes you one hour instead of eight hours so that you can devote the rest of your day to who you love, right? I think this is what happens when we fast, right? We think about what we want to eat and where we want to eat and what time we want to eat. I think in our, in, in our psyche, we just get so caught up with stuff that we're, we're forgetting who we have right here. Fasting is shedding this stuff and this dependency on stuff and food and self for the sake of the one that we have. I'm going to close with this last point. Notice how this ends. It's not just that they are beholding and fasting and praying to God. I mentioned it earlier that it's a two-way street. God hears them, but notice what it says right there in verse 31. And we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month, and the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and we remained three days. And on the fourth day, we went into the house of our God with all of our goods. So notice God did not just hear them. God answered and God helped. But notice what happens. Look at the order, which it, it, it kind of threw me off a little bit. But notice what happens right after verse uh, right after verse. 28. He says, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our treaty. And look at verse 24. And then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. You see what's happening? He fasted, he drew near to God, and he came out of that fast and out of those prayers, and then action started right there. Then he knew what to do. But look at how he... Look at it. He says, I weighed out the silver and the gold and the vessels and the offerings... And then look at, what I, look at what he says in verse 28. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy. Look at verse 29. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of our Lord. Do you see what Ezra's doing? He actually is talking in faith. He says, all right. This is what we're going to do. Let me get 12 of y'all. We're going to weigh this out and weigh it now. 
You're holy to the Lord. All of this is holy. And when we get to the house of the Lord and into his chamber, not if, not if. He says, when we get there, and they made it there. But he made the declaration while they were still at the river, when we get there, what's happening? He is confident. My Lord heard me. My Lord will guard us and keep us. We will make it home. We will make it to Jerusalem. And not one single hair will be lost. Not one single piece of gold will be taken. Not one single person will die. And it is because the hand of our Lord got us there. Do you believe that, Christian? The God who saved you? He will bring you home. The God who saved you, who loves you in Christ, he will draw near to you. It's not an if. It can't be an if. The wrath is gone. You're beloved as a son or a daughter in the Lord. It's not an if. You will make it home. You will be safe. And even if you take if you die, you will wake up into the very presence of the Lord. It is a win win for all of God's people. One hundred percent of the time. He is faithful always to his people. And that's my prayer is when we're in the bind, whatever the bind might be in your life right now. that you would draw near to your Lord and your God. And he promises to draw near to you. Not because I said it, but because Jesus has accomplished it. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us the eyes of faith and the hearts of faith to believe that you really are there and you really do care that in those hard places in life, if we would but humble ourselves and draw near to you through Christ, it's a beautiful weapon in our armory as one uh, scholar talked about, praying and fasting and how often we don't use it. I do pray that you will make